Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. Before we start the fun and frolic, I need to point out a technical problem. We lost the first 20 or so minutes of our guest Jason A. Miller's audio while recording somehow, and we didn't realize it until after the recording was finished. So for the first 20 minutes, when you hear him speak, you'll be hearing our side of the audio rather than what he recorded. But right around the 24-minute mark, you'll be able to hear him in, well, mostly pristine glory. We apologize, as usual. These are things that you really can't control, though we should be able to. Thanks, and enjoy. Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello fellow time travellers, I'm Pearl Mackey, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels! Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the judicious task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That's a bit of a stretch because there's an adjudicator there, you know. My name is Tony Witt and today we have a sometimes judicious four-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, and that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time, again, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. And this time we have a special guest, someone who maintains a blog and Twitter feed dedicated to the Target novels. He also used to be the book reviewer for Enlightenment, the Toronto Doctor Who fan organization, and he has had critical work published in most volumes of Robert Smith ATB Publishing's Outside In series, and that's none other than Jason Miller. Hello, Jason. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for having me on board. I will try not to embarrass the show. Oh, believe me, there's no way that you could. We've done it all ourselves multiple times in the past. New and exciting ways, though, maybe. Exactly, exactly. Before we get to the regular stuff, Jason, why specifically this book? You requested to come in on this book. Why so? Well, I have been a Doctor Who fan since 1984, and I got my first Target novelization in 1985, and I first got The Doomsday Weapon probably in June or so of 1985, which makes this the Doctor Who Pinnacle Book Club podcast because I'm holding in my hand my Pinnacle edition, not my Target edition. I have that too. This is the November 1984 printing from Pinnacle Books. In fact, I'll pass uh, that right around while you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Quite a cover. This yes. is a remarkable cover, which I hope we get to talk about in a few minutes. Oh yeah, we will. Absolutely. Wow. So, the deal was that I was 11 years old and in exchange for babysitting my sister after school, I would get two Doctor Who novelizations every other Saturday. Oh, wow. So, at the time, Doctor Who books were 
two ninety five a pop, so I was working for six dollars every two weeks, which is not even minimum wage. So I need to fire my lawyer and my agent. You really do. <laughs> so every other week we go to the Wallen Books in the local mall. I know I'm dating myself here. I remember. Yeah, those. we remember that. I would have twenty minutes to to peer at the shelf and pick two books out of, at the time, you know, 30 or 40 that were available every other week. So the Doomsday Weapon spoke to me because of the cover and because it was a third Doctor story. And this was unlike most other Target books that I had read. So I quickly became obsessed with how different this book was. And I probably read it, this is a conservative estimate, maybe 12 times over the last 35 years. Oh, wow. wow. Goodness. I think I've read it maybe and only three or four times. So whereas most of the Target books I dedicate two posts to on my blog when I'm updating it, which is rarely, the Doomsday <laughs> Weapon is unique in that it is a three-post book. So Ooh. I dedicate three posts to this one little tiny book. Oh, it's hardly tiny, though. It's one of the longer novelizations. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember reading that post when you first sent me the link to it, and you go into... A lot more detail than we're going to get to, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, hit a lot of it. Now, how many hours of work were you doing for your two novels? Let's see, it was two hours Monday through Friday, and then it was the occasional Saturday night. So if I worked Saturday night, I would get a third book, but at the time we only had one VCR, and my mother had to take Masterpiece Theater. So if I was watching, I was not allowed to watch Doctor Who on Saturday night on PBS, if my parents were not home because the VCR was on another channel. Oh, of course. Cruel. So at the price of the third book, I was missing whatever John Pertwee story was streaming on New Jersey Public Television. Oh, wow. So this book was in lieu of watching The Ambassadors of Death. And it is a better placement for it. <laughs> no, it's interesting that you mentioned that time frame because the first Doctor Who episodes I saw was were with Pertwee, and it was like 1986, I think. Mm-hmm. This was just what was available then. Yeah, I think you two, being much of the same generation, probably were watching the Pertwee stories because that was the first part of the package that was available from Time Life at that mm. point, and the P- PBS stations, because in 87 they added the Hartnell stories. Mm. So I didn't see a Hartnell story until 1987. Yeah, I think that's about right. Okay, well, tell you what, let's uh, do some business real quick. Before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of these, it's what you use to build your colonies in space with. (laughs) As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lemmy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, and Jay Barry. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with our discussion of another Season 8 story and another renamed one, The Doomsday Weapon. Without further ado, here's some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, adapted by Malcolm Holt from the script entitled Colony in Space, that aired from 41071 to 51571, published by Target Books in April 1974. As of this recording in July of 2019, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 166 pages. 
Now, just to get some stuff out of the way about the story and all that, this is the Doctor's first official trip off-world since his exile began. And the reason for it is simple. Malcolm Hulk was the one who originally told Terrence Dix that this exile would lead to only two types of stories, alien invasion and mad scientist stories, and he was determined to stretch those restrictions as much as he could by introducing a story in which the Time Lords are in control of the Doctor's movements off-planet. Because it was also the first story from that 1971 season to be novelized, Hulk essentially did what David Whitaker did way back in the Daleks and introduces Joe as a new character, even though she'd already been in three stories by this point. Uh, it actually makes the book version of Joe somewhat better, arguably, in my humble opinion. Other major changes include the depictions of the primitives, the priests, and the guardian. The cover of the reprint Target edition shows them as they actually are, and this is the one I'm showing to uh, our panelists right now, whereas the Pinnacle version is uh, based on the text itself. And as you can see, that cover is extremely striking. And before we talk about it, I want to talk about the Pinnacle editions, which we've never actually covered on this program mm -hmm. because they haven't come up before. This is the very first Pertwee story in story order to have been published in an American edition. In 1979, Kensington Publishing decided they wanted a piece of the newfangled popular show that Time Life was showing on PBS, so they got the rights to reprint 10 Target novels in Americanized editions. In other words, spellings like C-O-L-O-U-R for color and G-A-O-L for jail would be changed to the ones we know. They would not include the illustrations. The Target book does. Probably just as well as Chris Achilleos was kind of having an off day when he did the illustrations for this one. Of the ten, only three were Pertwee stories, and the first one was Day of the Daleks, which is in the next season. Still, this set of books comprised of the three Pertwee stories and seven Tom Baker stories were popular enough in the States that even after Lyle Stewart gained the rights to distribute the original books here, they continued being reprinted as late as 1989. These editions are notable for several reasons, one being the newly designed logo, and another being the striking cover art, which sometimes improves on the original, as this one does. But the biggest difference is the earliest of these books has an intro by none other than the late Harlan Ellison, who proclaimed the Doctor Who was his favorite TV show. In fact, I will later do a dramatic reading of Ellison's intro as an extra for this episode, when I'm alone and can't be laughed at. So Well, even, even just this little tagline at the top says, Incomparable, Extraordinary. My hero, Doctor Who. Which doesn't sound like Ellison at all. <laughs> but, but. <laughs> but still, that's, that's a pretty good start. So. Yeah, it really is. So Jason, you, want, you said you wanted to talk about that cover. So let's start there. The attention to detail, looking at the upper right-hand side of the illustration, you have the bare-chested primitive with the flowing Native American hair <laughs> who has six fingers on his spear hand, yep. which actually matches the text of the book. Yep. So I can imagine David Mann sitting there marking up the text with highlight pens going, ah, six fingers, gotta remember that. <laughs> and then directly under the unfortunately emphasized primitive, you have the three dragon claws, mm -hmm. which are enclosing on the side of the face. And to this day, I am not sure whose face that is supposed to be. I'm not sure if that is David Mann's version of the Master or his version of Captain Dent or his version of John Pertwee. I just don't know. And there was actually a minor discussion thread about this drawing 
when I posted my related blog about David Mann and the pinnacle covers. Really? Okay. Somebody thinks that it's Pertwee on one side and Delgado on the other. I agree. I think so because of the the eye color. Because Pertwee's eye is blue and the master's eye color is brown, which tracks with the actors. Ah, that's a good explanation. And then you have the sort of glowing yellow angelic figure in the middle who is supposed to be the head primitive that we meet later in the book. On top of him is a rat with ferocious fangs, so I suppose it's meant to be the fake IMC robot monster projection, which on television, if memory serves me right, was played by a very placid iguana. Yes, it was. Slightly more impressive on the page here. I actually think that Animal Face is the priests, because they're described in the text as having these animal badger-like faces. And I think that might be one of the priests because the then you have, yeah, and then you, yeah, it looks like a hood actually, and then you have the guardian right in the middle. It's actually a Star Wars crossover. That is an Ewok. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> All right, out you go. Get you, your license been revoked. I'm going to get thrown out for saying I don't think it's Pertwee because I think those are green eyes and the mustache. I think it's Dent. Okay, you're out too. Yep. <laughs> it's actually the Brigadier. I, I thought that when I first saw this cover. But why would the Brigadier be there I don't when he's know, exactly on f- four pages of the book? But the resemblance yeah. is there. It really is. It really is. <laughs> perhaps, it, that confuses me. Perhaps but. the artist's interpretation is that the Brigadier is actually the mastermind behind all of this. And is actually <laughs> controlling events behind the scene. Kind of no. is. Because yeah. the Brigadier and the Master are never on the same page at the same time. Literally. True. <laughs> <laughs> and figuratively. Mm. And I, I just want to bring up, according to the... Copyright page. The artist here is David Mann, who I looked up. David Mann turns out to have been a biker artist specializing in biker art. Hmm. Seriously. You have to imagine that he shows up at the clubhouse in the East Village of Manhattan, his book in the pocket of his leather jacket, and he shows it around to everybody, and they're having a serious, sorry, Hell's Angels biker discussion about this book. That's a scene that I would love to go back in time and watch. And I'm sure that they would probably have just as intellectual a discussion as we're having because it, it's one of those things that would lend itself to that. Though they probably had a copy of the Target one. Anti-establishment themes. That's, mm-hmm. that, that could be a good I conversation. Would say so. It would definitely yeah. appeal to them. Um, Jason, we have a tradition on the show of having our guests read the back cover. You have the pinnacle in front of you, and I have the target, so I'm going to have you read the pinnacle version first, and then I'm going to read the target version, and we'll see just how well they match up. The pinnacle version was not meant to be read in a Brooklyn accent, but I will give it my best note. <laughs> in red print, we have Terrorizer of the Universe. While Doctor Who was exiled on Earth and restricted to the 20th century, the charming but hypnotically evil master, whose one ambition is to destroy Doctor Who, walked off with a doomsday weapon fight. Doctor Who, commanded by the Time Lords to stop the master at any cost, is directed to a bleak planet in the year 2471. Hidden somewhere on that planet is the doomsday machine. Lurking somewhere in that time zone is the master. Will Doctor Who, hampered by alien monsters, locate and dismantle the doomsday weapon before the master triggers it? It's a terrifying countdown affecting all mankind, past, present, and forever. Fantastic. And it sounds like the uh, target copy is not too far from it. The evil master, all caps, has stolen the Time Lord's files on the horrifying doomsday weapon, with which when he finds it, he can blast whole planets out of existence and make himself ruler of the galaxy. The Time Lords direct Doctor Who and Joe Grant in their TARDIS, because they, you know, co-own it, 
to a bleak planet in the year 2471 where they find colonists from Earth under threat from mysterious savage monster lizards with frightful claws. And hidden upon this planet is the doomsday weapon for which the Master is intently searching. Uh, could we also, from the Tent Pentacle edition, read the Doctor's dating profile in yeah, yellow text? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that, Allison? All right, so imagine a photo that's probably several hundred years of him out of date. <laughs> Doctor Who was a mysterious, zany, and very mature Time Lord, 750 years mature to be exact, who hurtles through space in a stolen time machine. Since there's a problem with the steering, he never lands exactly when or where he plans to. This, along with his desperate desire to bring law and order to the universe and his insatiable curiosity, consistently places him in strange and often perilous circumstances. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, you'd, you'd swipe right on that immediately, wouldn't you? Desperate desire to bring law and order to the universe. Gave me pause. That sounds a little, yeah, that sounds more like something that the Master would do. Okay. We do have one more edition. Um, I will put a picture of it up on the uh, website as soon as we uh, get this posted. It is the Turkish edition of the Doomsday Weapon, and I have run the text through Google Translate twice, and this is what I've gotten. <laughs> Refried text. Yes, it, it, sounds, it sounds similar. The Wicked Master has stolen the secret weapon file that can destroy a portion of the Space Lords in an instant. Its purpose is to dominate the galaxy. The Lords of Time appoint Doctor Who and the TARDIS Time Tool to capture this weapon hidden on a distant planet before the Master. World history is the year 2471. Just so you know. Mm-hmm. And knowing's half the battle. All right. And it's not Doctor Who, it's Doctor Kim. Doctor Kim. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know how that's pronounced. In fact, what I will likely do as another extra on this episode is I will let the Google Translate program read it aloud to you because it's kind of hilarious. Şeytan zekalı master zaman lordlarından uzay bir bölümünü bir anda yok edebilecek gizli silah dosyasını çalmıştır. Amacı galaksiye egemen olmaktır. Zaman lordları Doktor Kim İVTRDIS zaman aracımı uzak bir gezegende gizlenmiş olan bu silahı master'den önce ele geçirmek üzere görevlendirir. Dünya tarihiyle zaman 2471 yılıdır. Speaking of swiping left, there's one little treasure that we haven't talked about, which is the pinnacle description of Joe Grant. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I am looking at it, and I am ready to swipe left. Joe Grant is Doctor Who's assistant and has accompanied him on several trips through time and space in the TARDIS, the incredible flying police call box. While quite fatigued and very pretty, she's also smart and is infuriated when Doctor Who treats her like a babbling idiot. Which she often does. <laughs> because she is. At times. Wow. I guess someone did read the books. Oh, yes. Interesting. All right. Well, where do we want to start with this? Um, well, let's go by order of seniority, I guess. Uh, Dalton, we're uh, from... Seniority? I'm from youngest to oldest. Oh. <laughs> I'll end up being the last one always because I'm always the oldest one uh, in the room. First impressions. So seniority on the earth is what you're going <laughs> Yes, right. exactly. Uh, As a lot of senior. Oh. <laughs> um, I was really excited for this one uh, given that it was a Malcolm Hulk book. Um, as, as we can all agree, they're, they're always fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, always, I was already expecting it um, to be well-written. Did not expect the the reintroduction of Joe <laughs> at the beginning. 
But yeah, over, overall, really, really pleased with it. The initial scene with the Time Lord and the young whippersnapper Time Lord mm-hmm. uh, was kind of a fun start. A, a little bit of a history lesson for someone who hadn't read any of the books, given that this one was kind of a little more contemporary than a lot of the later ones we've read. Yeah. And brand um, new to the story, too. Yes. That's not the televised yeah. version. Um, so yeah, it, it lived up to it. I, I really enjoyed this book. Okay, Allison. Just, How many of these have I read? Like 30-ish? At least. Somewhere in because there. Because we're in episode episode 57. This is definitely in my top five. Really? Yes. Some flaws, but overall I really enjoyed it a lot, although I was quite disoriented by the introduction of Joe because somehow the simple scenario that this was a framing device for the novelization never occurred to me. <laughs> and I kept expecting some kind of reveal about this was a time bubble and none of them remember it later or something <laughs> like that. Or maybe the episode itself was a flashback. Right. Because we're, Or maybe you had messed up the order. Heaven forfend, I suggest that you oh. had messed up the sequencing at all. That was, that, sorry. That sorry the thought ever <laughs> crossed my mind. Uh, but I actually liked the introduction of Joe and the idea she had idea she'd have an exciting life life of spying and it turned out it was going to be a life of filing and how she was quite upset about it and I it was one of the less complexly plotted ones we've read uh, but that's okay because I was kind of tired of Rube Goldberg plotting devices oh yeah and um, I'm very curious about whether or not the episodes had these backstories on Joe on Dent Etc. Because I found them delightful. And somehow, if I were to describe them, it would sound self-indulgent on Hulk's part, but I thought Mm -hmm. they were actually terrific. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the joys of reading a Hulk novel, especially when he's novelizing his own scripts, because he knows what he intended for these characters, regardless of how they come off on screen. Where is this in the history of sci-fi in terms of a semi-dystopian future where the entire Earth is a city? Who was mm. the first to do this oh, wow. at scale? Um, this is before the, the versions of it I'm familiar with. It's before yeah. Blade Runner, before Firefly and Frey. Uh, and you think, since one of my subjects is dystopiana, I should know this off the top of my head. Of course, if I had been thinking about that question seriously, dear listeners, I would have said at the time that... Isaac Asimov, in his Caves of Steel book in the 50s, was probably one of the first ones to promulgate this, though I'm sure that if I actually did the research, like a good podcast host should, I would come up with an even more accurate answer, so apologies, etc. The specific the specific combination that Earth is one big city, and now mm. there are people out this sort of the sci-fi western well, where there are people out on other planets. It depends on whether you're looking at it from a sci-fi perspective or you're looking at it as modernism gone nuts. There is a book called High Rise by J.G. Ballard that talks about people in a high rise with all the luxuries and conveniences and you're supposed to stay in your uh, unit essentially, but they turn against each other and it turns all Lord of the Flies very badly and very quickly. And there's a very good movie version of that on Netflix, as it turns out. It was also adapted, and Jason will know this, it was semi-adapted into a Doctor Who story called Paradise Towers in the late 80s. So there's that. There's that. I will point out, I read High Rise probably about eight or nine years ago when my child was a year old and I was single parenting. It is the most devastating book that I have ever read. I had several months I needed to recover from the end of High Rise. Yeah. 
Yeah. So do not read that one lightly. That's my bit of advice to you. No, it's it's a rough one. I would never I would never assign it lightly. There's another book that's closer to this though. And it's called The World Inside. And I think the author is Robert Silverberg, but I'm not sure about this. And it was early 70s, and it talks about a world where the surface is devastated, so everyone lives in these gigantic high-rises. And in order to keep humanity sane, all social mores are basically gone. Anyone can have anyone else. It's very um, uh, Brave New World-ish. Except that it's meant to be, you know, trying to keep people from falling into that whole high-rise thing. Now, to answer your question, the whole thing about dystopian on other planets, uh, I'm sorry, on, on Earth, I would say that that whole trope starts getting steam in the 60s, late 60s. So this is probably the golden age of it. We're going to get an, at least another story that's very much like this. Okay. In fact, um, Jason, am I wrong in thinking there's probably like two stories in which we hear about a future Earth where everybody's chock-a-block behind each other? Well, with Malcolm Hulk, in a couple of seasons on TV, we are coming into Frontier in Space, which he novelized as The Space War. Mm -hmm. And that actually takes place on a somewhat contemporaneous Earth in the 26th century, where you have flying cars and the president of Earth and lots of war, etc., etc., Mm -hmm. That makes Space War a somewhat spiritual follow-up to Colony in Space. Right, right. And I'm trying to remember when Soylent Green was written, because that would probably reflect the society most clearly on film. The movie would have come out in 1971, because that was Edward G. Robinson's last movie. Right. Which was about the same time that Colony in Space was being mounted to television. Interesting. So it's definitely part of the zeitgeist. So I think that answers your question, sure. Allison, that it, we're yeah. right there at it, at the start of it, or sure. at least the golden age of looking at future Earth as this Malthusian, specifically sure. Malthusian nightmare of overpopulation. Well, and this paired with this idea of space as Wild West, complete with the robber barons yes. that we had in the Wild West <laughs> exactly. as well. So. Yeah, definitely that. Definitely that. Also, I... Um, Completely forgot about the master because he didn't appear for about a hundred pages yeah. mm -hmm. between his first introduction. I thought that was actually great because I was so engrossed in the intermediary part that um, I forgot to look forward to him. <laughs> so it was actually kind of a surprise. So I talked about the adjudicator showing up with a small beard. I'm like, oh, oh, he's on the cover. Yes, yes. And he he texted at the very beginning. Yes, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, unlike these editions where you look and it's like, oh, there's Delgado on the cover. He's going to be there sometime. Um, yeah, I much prefer this. I much prefer the sort of uh, introduction to the master being kind of held off for a bit. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen again later on, which is going to be really nice. What else do we want to talk about with this book? So the Star Trek connection for me, there's a Star Trek original series episode called The Doomsday Machine. Yes. And I can never remember between Doctor Who and Star Trek which one is the Doomsday Machine and which one is the Doomsday Weapon. Weapon is Doctor Who and Machine is Star Trek. <laughs> but, but, Tony, the Pinnacle version doesn't help because on the back cover they say Doomsday Weapon and Doomsday Machine at the same time. That's true. And the yes. Turkish translation called it a tool. Oh, that's right. They called it a tool. <laughs> the Turks uh, call it a tool. Or maybe that was the TARDIS. It was a time tool. A time tool. <laughs> a time tool, yes. You're a total time tool, man. <laughs> You're a total time tool. The way I remember it is that the um, the weapon is still not being used yet. The machine is in action, as you'd expect an action uh, machine to be. 
that's about the only way I can keep them apart. And in terms of dystopiana, you also have the somewhat contemporaneous Star Trek episode, The Mark of Gideon. Oh. Which is about a planet where they have no space for any people, but still have room to create a mock-up of the Enterprise with nobody on it. <laughs> because that's but how that you is deal. a story for another day. Yeah, exactly. That was 1969, wasn't it? That was third season? Yeah, that sounds right. The, the, yeah. the tail end of the original series. Then I would say, you know, we're seeing it start, that trope is starting to peak right around this time. I especially like the way the backstories for Jane Leeson versus Dent show their completely opposite reactions to this living situation oh, yeah. of you know, the Leeson's Mary look at the new ultra efficiency with the toilets to the bed and say, we've got to get out of here. <laughs> Whereas Dent has a place slightly larger and it's interesting that the members of the crew keep going back to living spaces that they presumably are away from for years at a time. Yeah. They live on a ship, but how they um, they monetize their entire lives around these small apartments they don't actually occupy. Right. And that's, I thought it was a nice sociology. And they also have company wives, mm-hmm. yeah, which is nothing that's mentioned on screen at all, mm. but it's a brilliant touch. Mm. Yes. And Dent's wife being a particularly interesting piece of work who basically tells him, you need to work harder so you can afford my taste. <laughs> exactly. Actually, I thought it was her. I, I, maybe I understood it differently. I thought it was her saying, it'll take you 20 years to pay this off, but meanwhile they'll move you to a harder, to a larger place, so you'll have to pay that off. I thought it was just her being very pragmatic of, now you understand how the company store works, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I think all of the company wives have been trained mm. in company policies. But I thought is... she was just explaining um, <laughs> how it was going to be, whether he liked it or not. And he's like, oh, I like that just fine. <laughs> right, exactly. It's probably why Caldwell's <laughs> wife leaves him because uh, he seems so, so completely against the whole idea. I wish they'd follow that up because I thought, oh, where does she go? Yeah. Is, it, is her gig a company wife? Where does she live probably now? Probably is. Probably is. Did she go she... back into the pool of available yes. company wives? I bet she did. I bet she did. Did they have to get a company divorce? Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Oh, Lord, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the IMC officers' wives are selected via computerized matching programs, so I think we can credit Malcolm Polk with inventing Tinder. <laughs> yeah. But I actually was... Match.com. Charmed by the idea that the uh, that, uh, <laughs> Captain and Mrs. Dent are both so sort of cold-blooded. They're actually very well suited for one yeah. another, and pretty happy together. Exactly. I thought that was yeah. a nice really villain are. couple. And <laughs> probably Caldwell's wife leaves because she's rebelling as well, and so is he. So it sounds like, yeah, I have a feeling that uh, what's-his-name's wife is probably a stone-cold killer back home. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't get to kill much of anything, so she takes it out on the roaches because there are always roaches. <laughs> she has a thriving exterminator business. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, what else? There's lots to say about this because, good God, Hulk adds so much to this. What does he add for those of us who haven't seen the episode? Okay, lots of stuff. Um, Jason, I'm going to let you go first. What are some of the most notable additions to this version that you uh, you saw? When I was doing my obsessively detailed, disturbingly dense uh, three-post review of the story, I actually was inspired to go chapter by chapter. Because, number one, we'll talk about the structure of the story. On TV, you've got six episodes, 25 minutes each. Lots of what can charitably be described as padding. Yes. For the novelization, this was Hulk's second book. It was only the sixth 
target novelization printed. And back then they're doing maybe three books every three or six months. So there's a lot more time than you would have later on when it was literally the book every four weeks. So what Hulk does is he explodes the structure of the TV story. So if this were written 10 years later, it would be 15 or 18 chapters, uh, three, two or three chapters per episode. Hulk doesn't do any of that. So the first half of the book only takes up episodes one and two of TV. Yeah. And the second half of the book crams in episodes three through six and cuts out a lot of material. Mm-hmm. In place, chapters one through eight of the book, I don't look at it so much as eight chapters of a novelization. It's almost eight separate short stories in a loosely linked anthology of futuristic fiction. Mm -hmm. Chapter one, you have the Time Lords. Chapter two, you have the Life and Times of Joe Grant. Chapter three, you have the TARDIS arriving on another planet and meeting the ashes. And interestingly, at the end of chapter three, we learn that it is the year 2972, whereas the Pinnacle back cover says it's 2471. (laughs) Help me understand that. Maybe, uh, the biker gang in the, the Hells Angels clubhouse uh, kind of missed that detail. A couple um, of them do, which I thought was odd because they make a point of it's exactly a thousand years. Yeah, they the all future. do, as a matter of fact. Even the Turkish edition says 2471. Are you sure your Google Translate for the Turkish edition was correct there? Yeah, because it's got the numbers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know Turkish, but I know uh, Arabic numerals. And this is definitely 2471, so that's... And they must have all gone from the same back information, because I noticed that Pinnacle Edition is a little more flowery version of the Target back matter. So they're all going from the same material. Interesting, though. So the level of character detail that he puts in... So the Leeson's, chapter three, sorry, chapter, whatever it is about the Leeson's. Mm-hmm. Chapter four. Chapter four. When I finally saw the TV story on PBS a couple of years after reading the novelization, I was disappointed to learn that the Leeson's are not featured nearly as much on TV, and you don't get the hint of their rich, or I should say poor, previous lives on Earth. Exactly. Yeah, you care a lot more about their deaths by the end of that chapter yeah. than you do when you see them on screen. So what about the funeral scene? is uh, not there that is new and that, it's my favorite it's scene fantastic. in the whole book Wonderful. in fact i want to read that scene aloud if i may oh please yeah from mm-hmm. chapter six it was the stranger the doctor who somehow saw into ash's troubled mind and came up to him and spoke very quietly you'll have to bury them now ash remembered reading an old audiobook about burying dead people back in the time when earth still had open land yes he said we must dig holes Graves, said the doctor so quietly that no one else could hear. Yes, said Ash, Graves. I've already asked two of your men to start preparing them, whispered the doctor. You and I must be pallbearers. And then you get that beautiful funeral service afterwards, which is amazing, given that it's written by Malcolm Hulk, who is a lifelong uh, communist and probably very suspicious of religion. Hmm. But it's lovely that the doctor says, um, explains why they do it. To live away from your earth, said the doctor, you've got to learn more than how to sow seed and use a plow. With death, there has to be a time for tears and then a time to rejoice in the continuation of life. Hence the tea, which is true. That's why we have food after funerals. It's because we're celebrating the continuation of life. So does the episode include Ash reading the Gospels? No. Because that that does blow my hair straight back for a person with more of a a communist view of things to have... Someone being positively influenced by reading religious literature. Yes, but you notice that that's a good bit of um, foreshadowing, 
because it's about mm-hmm. sacrificing your life sure. for others, and that's exactly yes. what he ends yes. up doing. Yeah, in in the text, it just comes out of the blue. Yeah, uh, the book, uh, the story comes out of the blue. Oh, and, and the Guardian as well. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Well, and then one of the other, whichever colonist is uh, commenting on it, doesn't get it. God, it's a weird, stupid thing to do. And <laughs> yeah. It, he hasn't read it. It's weird too because, um, and Jason knows this. Um, that in a later book, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, the book is going to end with two of our characters looking up a bit of scripture. Hmm. And it's just strange to see it in a Doctor Who book, though not as strange as uh, other times that other authors have tried to include religion. Here it feels like one of a piece. It seems to Hmm. work. But when, um, God, um, Jason, help me out here. What was the name of that missing script of Hartnell's that they did? Um, something about Macedonia. And the entire first act of it is uh, Hartnell and Ian Chesterton talking about believing in God. Uh, there was a big Finnish adaptation of that, if I can remember correctly, which I probably heard about 10 years ago, but I am blanking on the name. That's it. That's the one I'm thinking about. And it, it just jars. Because, like, okay, the Doctor rarely mentions religion, and when he does, it's not always positive, but here Hulk actually says, yeah, here's here's what religion does for us. It's not necessarily something that should guide our lives so that we live a certain way, so that we'll have whatever everlasting in the afterlife. It's It shows us how to be good moral people. But then it also includes very debased religion, where they're essentially yes. worshipping the doomsday weapon, mechanically servicing it without realizing what they're doing, that they're maintaining and refueling it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's literally killing them with radiation. Yeah, precisely. Is that what was was being described with the yellow hair, that it was a sign of radiation poisoning? Yeah, of course we don't get that on screen at all. Mm. They're just, you know, really, really bad costumes. (laughs) Then the Guardian himself is a really, really bad puppet. Oh. God. That would have been state-of-the-art for 1971. That is true. Getting back to the religion for a moment, uh, growing, growing up in a Jewish household on Long Island, I didn't know thing one about Christianity as an 11-year-old boy. So I didn't know anything about the four Gospels or about Jesus. So I would have to say my introduction to the Gospels uh, came through this book. Oh, it could do worse. And it wasn't, <laughs> yes, it wasn't until true. I had to read portions of the New Testament for high school English class in ninth grade in 1987 that I made the connection. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's like Allison said, you really could do worse. This is one of the better introductions to some of the nicer bits of the religion. It leaves out the, uh, you know, Jesus vomiting up a sword later on and smiting Satan up the ass later. But uh, ah. is that the apocryphal? No, no, no. Revelations. Oh, oh. Yeah, it's very. I don't remember that specific passage. Well, maybe I'm getting the ass thing wrong. I always do. But as far as the rest, yeah, it's it's got. You can tell Hulk is interested in the idea of religion, and I can't. I, I honestly can't think of another writer who even tries to tackle it in a novelization. Maybe you can, Jason. Do you know of another writer who uh, even tries to bring it up? I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I will say that as an introduction to Christianity, it's much more user-friendly than C.S. Lewis and the (laughs) last two chapters of The Last Battle, which uh, would have destroyed my worldview when I was a kid if I had understood what he was trying to say. Yeah. Oh, it certainly does. Those do not do uh, Christianity any service at all. No. No. Also, some of the characterization is slightly different. 
Dent, as you said, has a huge amount of backstory that we do not get in the televised version, and I really don't like the character of Dent much in the televised version because the actor who plays him reminds me of my Aunt Gladys for some reason. He's just not the most masculine sort of fellow. He's the dour and all this. It's not and his nothing. fault that he would resemble your Aunt Gladys. Yeah. Well, I know this. Don't take it out of him. I know, I know. But he he's much more three-dimensional on the mm. page. In fact, they all are. They all are far more three-dimensional on the page, and I adore that about this. Well, his psychopathy is humanized, if that makes yes. sense, in that he's not necessarily a natural-born psychopath. It's mm-hmm. just that this was the path of both least resistance and hard work. A person who would definitely say, I've worked hard for everything that I've, that I've <laughs> had, but... He, he followed a very set path. He was advised by his father, you should right. do this, this, and that, work hard on this, and this will happen, and he did. The company said you should do this, this, and that, work mm-hmm. hard, and he did. And he does. He orders and does the most cold-blooded things in a very matter-of-fact way that yes. is made empathetic through the, the background that we're given on yeah. it. Yeah, and he needs to be trained to do most of these. I love the, the continuous references back to the training manual. Yes. Even down to how to talk a subordinate down yes. when they're on the ledge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which well, is wonderful. And I would argue I would argue that chapter eight, which is the chapter that introduces Dent, teaches you how to be a supervillain. Yes. <laughs> the life advice that you get from Captain Dent in this chapter. Quote During arguments, people exposed what was really going on in their mind, and Dent never wanted other people to know what he was thinking. We learn that Dent presents himself as a simple, non-scientific man in order to dodge debate points, and when he verbally offenses with the doctor, he thinks normally he didn't have to contend with intelligent people like the doctor. Mm-hmm. So if you become a supervillain, you can thank Captain Dent for all these very important supervillain life lessons. That's for true. In fact, there are two quotes that I have from that chapter. If there was one thing Dent hated, it was people who could think and reason. It was that kind of person who always caused trouble. I could just see Trump thinking exactly something like that. Yeah. And Dent liked Morgan. Morgan was ambitious and totally unscrupulous. Dent thought you could always trust people like that. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> Great lines. Yeah. Well, and here, what you're talking about, the, the manual, Captain Dent had never met with insubordination like this before. He tried to remember what he had learned during staff management training. Caldwell, he said, putting on a smile. We're sitting on the biggest gerilinium strike, whatever it's called, strike in the history of IMC. There's no time for two old buddies to fall out about some stupid girl, which is a pretty good uh, modern English translation of um, Achilles and Agamemnon making up. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs) Where the line is translated, we should never have quarreled about those women. And they're like, well, and in the Iliad, it's, you know, slave women and whether or not they'll be returned when their families bring the ransom. And here it's whether or not they'll unhitch the girl from the bomb. (laughs) And the fact that he calls him Buddy, you cannot imagine that actor using the word Buddy at all. Whereas this one, the character in the book, you definitely can. But in terms of uh, the doctor talking about how out here the colonists will have to learn to live like people, I got the idea that maybe this is the first time Dent has ever been angry. Yeah, I think so. Has ever he, felt... Never... It's reminding me a lot of my, uh, as I've spoken about in the past episodes, Oh yes. where we've dealt with uh, capitalism... <laughs> It reminds me a lot of my current employer and how... <laughs> Names have been omitted to well, protect the of, guilty. <laughs> well, and just how probably a lot of people, 
your employer wants you to be completely indebted to them and thankful for them and mm-hmm. and kind of indoctrinate you into this way of thinking right. about their purpose in the world <laughs> and how what they are doing is good mm-hmm. and in its own right is a form of religion. Yes. yes. Agreed. And Agreed. I'm sitting here thinking about the way that these people in IMC have basically become, you know, Cybermen. Mm-hmm. They have removed their humanity to become these robots yes. doing what the company wants them to do. And they're specifically doing things that are not in humanity's best interest. They're, well, they're inhumane. Yeah, yeah that there's that subtler theme here of how profits outweigh sense. Because if the government on Earth were completely logical, they would throw all their resources at colonizing other worlds. But with IMC and other companies making good money, as long as that doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine, for instance, these days that Exxon did some of the pioneering work on environmental effects of petroleum dependency. But, yeah, they decided, no, we like the profits better. Well, and uh, Amazon, you refers to the cult of the customer. And um, some of your more, um, you've probably heard before that if you psychologically profile a corporation the way you uh, profile a person, they're almost all psychopaths. (laughs) Which, in my mind, is actually very liberating because that's fine. We can Mm -hmm. regulate accordingly. A corporation is not a person. It doesn't, you know, have a soul and rights and a family in the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm reminded of, um, there was uh, a few years ago, the Koch brothers had a facility on the south side with, um, one of their companies had a facility with, uncovered piles of pet coke and the wind would blow it into the adjoining neighborhood known carcinogen very dangerous and so when they were interviewed about this as they were trying to avoid the expense of basically throwing giant tarps over it um couldn't be bothered uh on the phone they had i mean on the phone but on the news they were interviewing a, a site supervisor who was with a very furrowed brow saying we have to serve our customers. They need access to these materials. All we're trying to do is what's best to serve the public. And there's oh, always God. this talking point of there is such a desperate need for what we are selling <laughs> and providing mm-hmm. yes. that we can't waste a single moment or a single dime on people not dying. We've yeah. got to deliver these materials. So I actually thought this was a fantastic book for teens on sort of the sociology of these situations and a good introduction to Mm -hmm. how everything the company does they do have legal cover Mm -hmm. for and everything they do that's Mm -hmm. illegal they know exactly how to make it look like they did Mm -hmm. something legal and they expect the adjudicator to rule in their favor even if a real one had shown up i thought it it was going to be someone the company sent yeah. But they expected a real one and thought, "Oh, well, we can we can win." Yeah, yeah. we're trying we to save our cu- we're trying to save our customers' money, not leech off of their interest payments. <laughs> exactly. Hmm. <laughs> it's interesting that this plot is the one that gets us most, and so that the doomsday weapon is almost a secondary consideration. Yes, really yes, is. which is a great yeah. accomplishment. Yeah. Well, also another great thing it teaches you for you know think about parts I have played in different corporate machines is, well. <laughs> it's well, no, that's it's something I've had a more glorious and, I you meant like Norton and lucrative stage. career mm. than I have. Yeah. Yes. Well, all right, so Norton is the only person who just straight up kills someone himself. Yeah. Everyone else is able to remove themselves, including uh, I've heard the name of the character who operates the robot. Morgan. Who's, talk, who's speaking in this detached way of, look, it's over very quickly, it's for the greater good, you won't feel a thing. Right. He feels differently when the robot's about to kill him, but even he. In his mind, all I'm doing is 
pressing a button on a remote control, dent, I'm just giving orders, mm-hmm. Caldwell, well, I don't even participate in the war stuff. And Caldwell's the most interesting one, because he's obviously facilitated all kinds of horrible things. Oh, it's just yeah. never come to this before, mm-hmm. but he's mm-hmm. always been able to tell himself, I'm in science, I'm in minerals, I'm not sure what's going on up there mm-hmm. on the, the security side of things. <laughs> and that's that's how... That's how modern sort of economic violence is often yeah. set up Agreed. as well, where you don't feel like you are doing it. You're just a cog in the machine, and every single person participating in the socially averse action or the exploitative action is just a cog, yeah. including the person who ordered it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I thought it was so interesting. Who's the spy again? What's his name? Um, uh, Norton. Yeah, mm-hmm. that Norton's just... Uh, kind of bloodthirsty. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that he is so different. Oh, he yeah. is the only one who doesn't have this sort of oh, self-soothing of, I'm just following orders. Yeah, and he's the most creepy character in the book, too, because not only is he kind of self-serving and bloodthirsty, but we get that little bit of his interest in Mary, who is underage, and it's like, oh, dear God. Okay, which is that... very unusual for the Doctor Who books, which hardly acknowledge sex at all. True. Yes. Very true. Extremely true. Yeah, Hulk definitely uh, acknowledges sex. He's one of the few authors to do it. He and Ian Martyr. Except when when Malcolm Hulk suggests or talks about it, it stays in the manuscript, whereas Ian Martyr gets it taken out by the editor. He's a little too explicit. A little, a little too explicit. <laughs> you know, what do you expect from a Scorpio? I wasn't uh, sure if Mary was actually still a child or she. She's teenage. When they referred to the doll, that was you know many years in the past. Yeah, I so. think I think she's teenage. I know that yeah. in the televised version, she's about fourteen or fifteen because she's actually an actress that's gone on to other things, and I cannot remember her name for the life of me. But it was one of her first acting gigs. But yeah, it's like oh my god, he's ugh, you know. And I think we're meant to be absolutely repelled by him more than anybody else. And the chapter on Norton is another remarkable piece of work. This is almost another short story. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Itself. So this is chapter nine, The Spy. And Norton says, in his heart, he had wanted to become an actor. But his father and mother had told him that he ought to get to work with one of the big corporations. Now he had the comfort and security of working for one of the biggest. IMC, and he had the chance to do some very real-life acting. Mm-hmm. Now compare that on television to uh, Roy Skelton, who was playing almost a throwaway part and getting away from the Dalek microphone. Norton in the book is much more memorable and much more terrifying. Yeah. Oh, that's something I forgot to mention. On screen, he's played by Roy Skelton, who provides the voices for the Daleks. Oh, yeah. Okay. Almost exclusively later on. I just but... visualized him as Edward Norton, who would play that part. <laughs> very well. Well, going back to my preoccupation with psychopaths in this story, I got the feeling that he's the only sort of naturally occurring psychopath. Everyone else, it's more interesting that they've been socialized to be this way, which is what you're more likely to experience in your own moral choices in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And there's my favorite Norton sentence. Norton parted two of the fingers, covering his eyes, in order to watch Ash as he stood over Holden's dead body. <laughs> Norton congratulated himself yes. on a marvelous performance. <laughs> oh, <Yes>. my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And luckily, he gets his comeuppance in the way that you'd expect him to, because Hulk definitely has that tend to happen, too, very, uh, very comfortingly. All right, so let's... Let's quickly talk about how 
how the regulars are in this. I mean, obviously with Joe, she's being introduced to us as new, even though she's not. <laughs> so for our panelists, this is what, your uh, fourth story with her? Uh, yeah, fourth story. Yeah, with her. Fourth, what are you thinking one. of her? Mm. Mm. Mm. Mm. <laughs> she does seem to have a little more to do. Yeah. She doesn't seem to get herself in as much trouble. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> still not getting that much You're feel still... for who this person is okay. yet. And I think a lot of that is just the way that Malcolm kind of deals with the book. It's a lot of world building, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, but... You're, we're focusing more on, like, why this colony exists, who this company right. is, who are the people that are colonizing from Earth. Mm-hmm. And so Joe's just kind of like, yeah, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I'm here. But he's going to explore her character far more than just about any other writer will. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's again, it's like, I keep hearing that, but yeah. it's still not getting there for me. Well, we'll, but, we'll get another take of his on her next season for sure, yeah. so maybe it'll come together then. But, uh, Allison, what do you think? I liked the framing device mm-hmm. that starts with her desire to be a spy like she's seen in the movies or read about in novels. Mm-hmm. And her dad gets her the interview to go through this training program, then she finds out that you know foreign intelligence agents are mostly embassy clerks who look at economic reports, right. which I thought was also a good thing for teens to read, a <laughs> realistic idea of what intelligent work is actually like, looking at documents. So much for your dreams, kids. Yes, and then, you know, she's uh, given a referral to apply for a more exciting job, and it's even worse. Um, but then, even though she is in the more in the background for the rest of the story, notice that she does spend a lot of time analyzing the economy of this situation. Oh, yeah. Mm. And the IMC's documents and whatnot. Mm. And it's, it's the marriage of what she envisioned as a child as an exciting career and what she was actually trained to do to figure out sort of the social and economic situation. Oh, yeah. One thing kind of annoyed me at the beginning is there are like three different mentions of her literally being led by the hand. She clung yeah. to the doctor's hand. She clings to the doctor's hand. And I, and I, Jane or Mary, like, leads her off by the hand to get food. And at first I just thought it was like, oh, good Lord, they're doing Victoria again in the worst <laughs> way. They're actually good Victoria stories. Mm-hmm. But then... There is an in the background a definite build of her saying, "Let's go do this and that," mm-hmm. and it, the decisions aren't always the smartest ones, but they make sense with what she knows at oh, that yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Towards till towards the end, you know, she's leading the rescue, or, or she actually she escapes. She's helping the other person escape, although I don't think that's how metal links work. You can just break them with a rock like that, Um, et cetera. So I actually thought it did have a very nice development for her, even though that was, let's say, a B story, almost a C story. I'm not sure I would have noticed at all if it weren't for the fact that it's the, well, I guess the original frame is the Time Lord archive, which I found delightful, in which they'd gone back to at the end, but... But then the next story is her, and then at the end, it's her deciding, yes, I like this gig. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. So I, I did like the overall trajectory, even if it was uh, very much in the background. Yeah, and I um, actually noticed something else that probably Jason noticed, too, that by doing this with Joe, Hulk manages to paper over a big plot hole. And I mentioned it before. It's that Joe knows that the TARDIS can travel. In this story, however, when she's brought into the TARDIS for the first time, 
she thinks that the doctor's making it up and has to be shown that it's an alien planet and you're actually here, yada, yada, yada, Mm -hmm. even though she's seen the TARDIS come and go before. That's why I was confused by this reset button. I didn't think of Mm -hmm. it as a framing device. I thought it was going to turn out to have something to do with memory loss or something that was overwritten or something like that. Well, if it's her first time meeting the Doctor, then this makes a lot more sense. But if it's her fourth story, then as it is on, on screen, then it makes a little less sense for her to still be doubting him at this point uh jason what did bored. You, yeah exactly <laughs> jason what did you think of joe in this one i'm going to spend the next 48 hours of this recording talking about why joe is so amazing in this book <laughs> all right so, okay you got two goes. minutes <laughs> all right number one liz shaw best companion ever fired number two joe grant brought in to be stupid <laughs> on tv joe debuts in terror of the autons part one Hands down, the worst introduction ever for a companion. (laughs) She gets hypnotized, tries to blow up the doctor, all in 25 minutes. Joe Grant, congenital idiot. She's high energy. She gets a lot done. Yes. (laughs) Tara gets novelized a few books after this one. That's Joe's proper introduction. Doesn't come across great. Malcolm Health does it differently. He gives her a chapter early in the book, one of those short story chapters. Makes her a full-throated character. Much more independent here. And in the third post in my blog, I go more into detail about what Hulk changes versus TV. There's that sequence in episode three where Joe and Winton, who has a remarkable mustache on TV, by the way, yes, I was so proud of a mustache like that, <laughs> they are chained to a bomb. And on TV, it's the two of them who engineer the escape. In the book, that's all Joe. So Joe, much more competent in the book. True. The part three cliffhanger, or I should say episode three cliffhanger on TV, is Joe getting kidnapped. That scene is deleted. On TV, poor Katie Manning gives the most horrible scream when she sees the Guardian. In the book, she does not scream. No. She does not scream. Joe is not a screamer when Hulk writes her. No. So Hulk definitely understands the character, definitely wants to make her more of a hero. She's almost the primary audience identification figure because there's a lot more POV from Joe in the book than of the Doctor. And in the book, she gets the literal last word, literally the last sentence. So this book is a tour de force for Joe, and I can't think of any other novelization, with the possible exception of The Green Death, which we'll get to later. Oh, yeah. This is a great book for Joe, in a way that the TV episode was not a great episode for Joe. So, Team Joe, Team Joe. (laughs) Now, she is going to have some really decent moments in, in Hulk's other novelizations, when we get to Sea Devils, for instance, and when we get to War in Space, which we already mentioned. But those, again, are his scripts, and he's written her much more strongly than any other writer is going to do. So this is, this is the Joe Grant character at her peak, in now, some ways. Who wrote the original script, the story? Uh, oh, it's, it's Hulk. Okay. Hulk. Yeah. Because yeah. there were a couple of... Parts in here I thought he might have been sick burns on the writer, but that would be on himself. <laughs> it would be on himself. Well, so here we have this very packed paragraph. The Doctor returned grim face from the IMC spaceship while he had been there completing repairs to the Collins electoral room, blah, blah, blah. There's like this one sentence here that seems to be half an episode's worth of <laughs> material that I thought Holt just decided wasn't very interesting. Ah. It was put into one busy sentence. This is, I can explain this. Okay. Part of the reason, one of the best things that telling it from Joe Grant's point of view does is it allows Hulk to 
cut down on the amount of scenes that tell us information we already know, mm-hmm. which is the padding that Jason was talking okay. about with the six-parter. Um, here, it's reported dialogue, and usually I hate reported dialogue. I've On this program, I've said quite often that yes. the worst example of reported dialogue was Marco Polo, and uh, I hate John Lucarati for that very reason. <laughs> Whereas here, the reported dialogue works because it's, it's shortcutting. Mm-hmm. But he's expanding at the same time. So we get mm-hmm. something that has taken the most economical approach to the same story and still manages to do it in 166 pages, mm-hmm. which is astonishing. The Absolutely. Other, other one's in front of the adjudicator who they don't yet know is the master. Ash is presenting his case. Ash was not brief. He described every detail of the events which had led up to this tribunal. Dent was pleased to see that the adjudicator was it was clearly bored with Ash's digressions <laughs> and general wordiness. And I thought that might have been, like I said, a sick burn on the script writer. Yeah. But he had written yeah. a rather boring and tedious monologue and recap. <laughs> but if he is the script writer, then right. I guess... I think so. we do get to hear part of that monologue <laughs> in the original. Okay, well, we need to wrap this up a little more quickly than we normally would unfortunately because this is one of those books you can just find all sorts of new stuff about Mm -hmm. jason anything else in this book that you want specifically to shine a spotlight on malcolm hulk obviously put a lot of padding on television but that's really not his fault you can't say it's his fault for padding the economics of the show in the 70s dictated you had to have a six-part episode yeah hulk as a tv writer was very good at writing padding. And I mean that as the highest compliment. It takes a special skill to write padding as well as he does. Yes. Mm-hmm. He puts in a lot of capture, escape, capture loops. He keeps you interested moment to moment, even if the overall story doesn't displace very much. In the book, he's equally as good writing a proper science fiction novel as he is writing padding for television because he doesn't need to put any of the padding in the book. And he can replace long capture, escape, capture loops with lots of poignant character moments so in the in the book the doctor actually takes a moment to worry about the real adjudicator the one that was killed by the master and when i got to the tv story finally on pbs i was hoping that that explanation would carry over to television it did not (laughs) so some of the best parts of colony in space only occur in the book and are nowhere to be found on television and i will defend the tv story it's very good for what it has to be but the book is just so much better. And that's the genius of Malcolm Hulk. I absolutely agree. There are six episodes of fairly decent television. But then you read the book. And then you realize, oh my god. It's like <laughs> it's like watching David Lynch's Dune and thinking, oh, this movie's incredible. And then going and reading the source novel. And you're like, oh, good lord. I had no idea. The scales have fallen from my eyes. I can see again. Hallelujah. It's got that sort of feel to it. And it, it, it would not be surprising to me if this is one of the manuscripts, if this is one of the books that Harlan Ellison read when he did that introduction, because it's the style of writing that Harlan Ellison would uh, glom onto the most, because it's very literary, it's very strong in characterization, sparing in prose, the right word for the right emotion. It's just thrums along like clockwork in a way that most Doctor Who novelizations do not do. And that's exactly the way Harlan Ellison at his best wrote. So I think he probably would have read something like this. I'm not I'm not so sure Day of the Daleks would have impressed him as much. 
But then that's fair, that's another case of the book being better than the story, but we'll get there eventually. Okay. All right. Um, what about you guys? Anything else you want to throw a spotlight on? Michael Moorcock. Oh. What? What about in Michael? Introdu- in his introduction, Harlan Ellison credits Michael Moorcock with introducing him to Doctor Who. So I'd never heard of Harlan Ellison at age 11. I'd never heard of Michael Moorcock. Flash forward 25 years, who's writing his own Doctor Who novel but Michael Moorcock? Yes. We've come full circle. Yeah, we have. We have indeed. That being said, Michael Moorcock's Doctor Who novel is very odd. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't quite read like a Doctor Who novel so much as it reads like a Michael Moorcock novel. But then again, I, I kind of wish Harlan Ellison had been asked to write either an episode or um, a book, but he famously did not like writing for television for very good reasons. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that. I will make sure to emphasize that when I uh, read his introduction for the uh, extra for this episode. Okay, how about you guys? Anything, any last thoughts? I think he has a good uh, grasp on humor about the master involves the master doing something awkward or stupid and trying to cover it up. So I like, just a minute, you and I can make an arrangement. I didn't really mean to use a weapon, only to frighten a few worlds. Please come back. I am very clever. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but he understands what is funny with the master. It is vain assertions of authority and brilliance. That is true. Absolutely true. I give myself a gold star. (laughs) I am the best. Um, Stable genius. Yes. (laughs) And also, Doctor, have you ever known me to be vindictive? (laughs) (laughs) He continued before the Doctor had time to answer. Yes, yes. Yes. I think we've uh, kind of clicked on uh, everything. Okay. So, Jason, shall we go on to Goodreads? Let's do it. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own readings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.49, which is really surprising to me. It seems really lowballed. Michael, in our Goodreads group, gives this 4.5 stars, saying the Doomsday Weapon is one of those Kurtwee-era stories that works better on the printed page than it does on the screen. Hulk's adaptation gives us an introduction to Joe Grant, even though this isn't her first online story. It sets up the colony situation better, makes the giant reptiles that are attacking everything seem far more lurid and believable than what we got on screen, boy howdy. It was one of those cases where my imagination filled in the details so well that no matter what we got on screen was going to pale by comparison. Hulk gives us solid characters, a good reworking of his original material, and some not-so-subtle political commentary along the way. In short, it may be one of the best novels from the Doctor Who range, whether you read it under the target or pinnacle banner. Meanwhile, Larry Van Hoodnos also commented in our group, but only gave this one a 1.5, saying, while I enjoy the books, if there's one author from the Pertwee era that I have a problem with, it's Malcolm Hulk. Hulk. I know. Hulk does the same thing in many of his books. He starts off with his idea of how the story should start off with, and goes from there. He will take one chapter and flesh them out and have them take up a good portion of a chapter until the character dies. It distracts from the story as a whole. 
give me a Terrence Dix story anytime. Whoa. So, less characterization, more plot. He has plenty of Terrence Dix books to delight him. Wow. So that's, wow, that's for damn true. He just wants, like, Cliff's Notes versions, I guess. I get, well, that's the Dix version for you. Yeah. And finally, Mel gives it four stars, and this is gonna, this is a bit of a long review, but it's worth hearing. I must check and see if Malcolm Hulk wrote the other Doctor Who book I really liked. This one was particularly good as he added backstory to the characters, particularly the quote-unquote evil characters. Here we have the evil megacorporation of a very cyberpunk style future Earth, very good, where people were forced to live in tiny apartments unless they worked for evil giant corporations, corporations that seem to encourage murder as part of their ways to acquire planets. Colonists were viewed as suspicious as they broke away from the norm, it was all pretty great. That being said, there was a terrible undercurrent of sexism in this book. The people who worked for the mining corporation were all men with wives hand-selected by the company, and the only thing the women colonists did was serve food, which even Joe helped with. You'd think she'd have one of her lim- women's liberants about that. Well, Joe never has a women's liberant. That's uh, Sarah Jane. <laughs> but it was an interesting story where the humans were both the heroes and the villains. The alien race was virtually non-existent, and the Master's appearance at the end felt a bit forced. I have to say the Doctor and the Master seem, did seem on very friendly terms throughout this. Though the Master did at one point want to kill the Doctor, he spent much more time trying to convince him to join him. Uh, compared to the very active role Joe has later in later adventures, even though I just finished reading this yesterday, I can't remember her doing much in this. Though she did manage to organize an escape where she was captured to get herself and the hopeless male captive free. Overall, this was a nice adventure to read while sick, and I'm looking forward to watching the a- actual episode it was based on. Could I say something about that? Yes, you could. Oh, <laughs> may I? The, the one scene that makes me think it's more than just an underactivism, but more he's thinking about it more than reading it prescriptively, is um, the scene where Joe is telling Caldwell that the uh, Master is basically a supervillain. Right. And he's sort of, I don't know, petting her on the head gently, yeah. not literally. He's like, oh, and, on, and she says yeah, something like, well, what are you, stupid? <laughs> so and he thinks, oh, what a nice, scrappy girl. By the end of the page, he's following her orders. Right. So <laughs> I did get, and th- there is, there is a, a sort of a weird recurring thing of uh, Hulk says, all right, the male colonists did this, and the women are basically over here, you know, ladling the soup or something right. like that. But I, I think he's pointing out the awkwardness of it. But mm. then again, I could be reading in things that are not there. Possibly. I think it's a little bit more but I think you're complex. Right. I think it is there. I think you're absolutely right. Because I thought he was critiquing the commodification of marriage when he was talking about the company wives. He might very well be. Mm. But <clears throat> yeah, I, because Hulk is a little more is a little more progressive than our seventies woke friend Terrence Dix is. That being said, he is also woke for the 70s. So <laughs> is that. So you cannot put that aside. These are middle-aged men writing about women, and that's always going to be problematic. Dalton, what did you give this out of five stars? Out of five, uh, I think the last book I did four stars, so I would give this one 4.5. Wow. I like this one more than the last book. Okay, why? Uh, just... Again, the the wonderful writing of Malcolm Hulk, it immediately just drew me in. And yeah, I'm curious to watch the episodes because usually if the book is good, the episodes are much worse. Yeah. And this one is, it's it seems to be the bad parts about it are the production value, not the story. Agreed. And I can deal with bad production. B-horror movies, great, whatever. Yeah. I can deal with that. <laughs> um, so yeah, just the story alone, it, it's really, it's an interesting look at 
yeah, like like Allison was saying earlier, it's like this space western. The prospectors just look, yeah. looking waiting for, for the judge to come to town yeah. or the marshal yeah. to come to town. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like yeah, this rush. this one really checked off a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of boxes for me. So okay. yeah, four point five for me. Terrific, Allison. I'm going to go four, which is stratospheric for me. Yeah, it is. So. <laughs> and it is imperfect. Like, actually, one of the things that annoyed me was Joe saying, uh, well, it's just an ordinary spaceship. I'm saying, if this is supposed to be her first story, <laughs> what standard of comparison does she have <laughs> right. for what's a typical or atypical spaceship? <laughs> but those are pretty minor things, and I liked it both for itself and also thinking about reading this as a teen. What an awesome introduction it is mm. to the concepts in here that really holds up. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, Jason, what would you give out of five stars? If I'm allowed to give really intense fractions, I'm going to say 4.75. Yes. This book has been part of my life for 35 years. I've been reading it since I was 11 years old. A lot of the life lessons that Malcolm Hulks puts along the way, like Captain Dent's theory on how to win an argument, I have internalized. It's hard for me to be objective about a lot of these Target books. Everyone I'm reading on any given day is my favorite. But objectively speaking, this one is so much better than the TV story. The first seven or eight chapters are little short stories in and of themselves. My top ten list is probably 25 books long, but this is definitely in my top ten. Okay, terrific. And I'm allowing you to do that fraction because I was thinking the exact same thing. (laughs) I would give this a 4.75 because it's almost up there with David Whitaker's best work. It's almost up there with John Peel's best work. Actually, it's better than some of John Peel's best work, and he would be the first to acknowledge that. There are those few flaws that keep it under the five, the perfect five, simply because... Yeah, that's what you get when you're writing about the future in the 1970s. There's yeah. no way around it. That being said, when I first read this book, it was the pinnacle version. And for some reason, in my little preteen head, I had this idea that there were American novelizations of the Doctor Who stories, and there were British hmm. novelizations done by different hmm. authors. Hmm. Okay. So when I first got this book... Not a crazy I th- idea. I, yeah, I, I did not know that Malcolm Hulk had done... <laughs> Uh, any Target books, and I'd read this, and I thought, oh my god, I've been reading really crappy books from the original <laughs> British authors. This Malcolm Hulk guy is really great. I'm going to have to hunt down the rest of the American versions, not knowing <laughs> that this is this is what this guy delivers all the time. Is yeah. he American? No. God, no. God, no, please. <laughs> no. No, but um, even when he's at his... Dim, dimmest. Like uh, we we talked about the War Games being mm-hmm. his last book, and we still liked it. Yeah, it was still a good book. Yeah, it's not this. It's not this, and it could have been. But it, even when he's at his least, he's definitely one of the best. And because I always say this when we have a Malcolm Hulk novel, Hulk is the strongest there is. <laughs> Simply because I'm not much of a geek. All right. Well, thank you guys. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get our first Barry Letts novelization of his own story, The Demons. Um, Jason, where can we find this blog of which you speak? I am at Doctor Who Novels, drwhonovels.wordpress.com. I did a three-part series in early 2017 on Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon. The first of those posts is called In the Year... 2972. Each post links into the next one. 
And as a bonus, after my final post is another post called A Word About Pinnacle Books, where I go into a little more detail about what Pinnacle Books was and still is, and where these Pinnacle novelizations fall in, and who was David Mann. And I tease a post that I ended up never writing about the Harlan Ellison introduction, which maybe I'll get back around to someday. Yeah, I definitely wish you would, because, of course, after the end credits, you listeners will be hearing my dulcet tones trying to do Harlan Ellison and failing miserably. (laughs) Okay, terrific. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces like a crazy person. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Videos of our first 12 episodes are still available at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. Or subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it usually does, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. I also want to point out that I will be reading the novelization Doctor Who and the Claws of Axos aloud, uh, live, on Twitch in the near future. In fact, probably we're looking at August, uh, August 17th, a Saturday. Details will be available on our Facebook page and probably in the description of this episode. So please come there, and if you like what you hear, and even if you dislike what you hear, just throw some money at us. Maybe that'll make me stop (laughs) doing it. Exactly. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash y32b8f55 along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye. Introducing Doctor Who, amenities performed by Harlan Ellison. They could not have been more offended, confused, enraged, and startled. There was a moment of stunned silence, and then an eruption of angry voices from all over the 1,500-person audience. The kids in their Luke Skywalker pajamas, cobbled up from an older brother's cast-off karate gi, and the retarded adults spot-welded into their Darth Vader fright mask howled with fury. But I stood my ground there on the lecture platform at the World Science Fiction Convention, and I repeated the heretical words that had sent them into animal hysterics. Star Wars is adolescent nonsense. Close Encounters is obscurantist drivel. Star Trek can turn your brains into puree of bat guano, and the greatest science fiction series of all time is Doctor Who, and I'll take you all on, one by one or all in a bunch to back it up. Auditorium monitors moved in, truncheons ready to club down anyone foolish enough to try jumping the lecture platform, and finally there was relative silence, and I heard scattered voices screaming from the back of the room, Who? And I said, Yes, Who? It was like that old Abbott and Costello routine. Who's on first? No, who's on third? What's on first? After a while, we got it all sorted out, and they understood that when I said who, I didn't mean whom. I meant who. Doctor Who. The most famous science fiction character on British television. The renegade time lord, the far traveler through 
time and space, the sword of justice from the planet Gallifrey, the scourge of villains and monsters the galaxy over, the one and only, the incomparable, the bemusing and bewildering Doctor Who, the humanistic defender of good and truth, whose exploits put to shame those of Kimball Kinnison, Captain Future, and Pennyweiss nerds like Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. My hero, Doctor Who. For the American reading and television viewing audience, and in this sole isolated case, I hope they're one and the same, Doctor Who is a new factor in the equation of fantastic literature. Since 1963, the Doctor and his exploits have been a consistent element of British culture, but we're only now being treated in the wonderful universes of Who here in the States. For those of us who were exposed to both the TV series on BBC and the long series of Doctor Who novels published in Great Britain, the time of solitary proselytizing is at an end. All we need to do now is thrust a Who novel into the hands of the unknowledgeable or drag the unwary to a TV set and turn it on as the good Doctor goes through his paces. That's all it takes. Try this book and you'll understand. I envy you your first exposure to this amazing conceit, and I wish for you the same delight I felt when Michael Moorcock, the finest fantasist in the English-speaking world, sat me down in front of his set in London, turned on the telly, and said, Now be quiet and just watch. That was in 1975, and I've been hooked on Doctor Who ever since. Understand, I despise television, having written for it for 16 years, and I spend much of my time urging people to bash in their picture tubes with Louisville sluggers to free themselves of the monster of the coaxial cable. And some of you must perceive that I speak of something utterly extraordinary and marvelous when I suggest you watch the Doctor Who series in whatever syndicated slot your local station has scheduled it. You must recognize that I risk all credibility for future exhortations by telling you this TV viewing will not harm you. Will in fact delight and uplift you, stretch your imagination, tickle your risibilities, flinch your intellect of all lesser visual SF affections, improve your disposition, and clean up your zits. What I'm saying here, in case you're a yachts who needs things codified simply and directly, is that Doctor Who is the apex, the pinnacle, the tops, the Louvre Museum, the tops, the Coliseum, and other etc. Now to give you a few basic facts about the Doctor to brighten your path through this nifty series of lunatic novels, he is a Time Lord, one of that immensely wise and powerful super race of alien beings who for centuries unnumbered have watched and studied all of time and space with intellects, as H.G. Wells put it, vast and cool and unsympathetic. Their philosophy was never to interfere in the affairs of the alien races, merely to watch and wait. But one of their number, known only as the Doctor, found such inaction anathema. As he studied the interplay of great forces in the cosmos, the endless wars and invasions, the entropic conflict between good and evil, the rights and lives of a thousand alien life forms debased and brutalized, the wrongs left unrighted, he was overcome by the compulsion to act. He was a renegade, a misfit in the name of justice, and so he stole a TARDIS and fled. Ah, yes, the TARDIS, the most marvelous device for spanning the timelines and traversing all of known, unknown space. The name is an acronym for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. Marvelous. An amazing machine that can change shape to fit in with any locale in which it materializes. 
that the TARDIS stolen from his fellow Time Lords by the Doctor was in for repairs, and so it was frozen in the shape of its first appearance, a British police call box. Those of you who have been to England may have seen such call boxes. There are very few of them extant currently, because the London Bobbies now have two-way radio in their patrol cars, but before the advent of that communication system, the tall, dark blue street call box, something like our old-fashioned wooden phone booth, was a familiar sight in the streets of London. If a police officer needed assistance, he could call in directly from such a box, and if the station house wanted to get in touch with the copper, they could turn on the big blue light atop the box, and its flashing would attract a bobby. Further wonder, the outside size of the TARDIS does not reveal its relative size inside. The size of a phone booth outwardly, it is enormous within, holding many sections filled with the Doctor's super-scientific equipment. Unfortunately, the stolen TARDIS needed more repairs than just the fixing of its shape-changing capabilities. Its steering mechanism was also wonky, and so the Doctor could never be certain that the coordinates he set for time and place and materializing would be correct. He might set course for the planet Karn and wind up in Victorian London. He might wish to relax at an intergalactic pleasure resort and pop into existence in Antarctica. He might lay in a course for the deadly gold mines of Voga and appear in Renaissance Italy. It makes for a chancy existence, but the doctor takes it all unflinchingly, as do his attractive female traveling companions whose liaisons with the doctor are never sufficiently explicated for those of us with a nasty, suspicious turn of mind. The doctor looks human, and apart from his quirky way of thinking, even acts human most of the time, but he is a time lord, not a mere mortal. He has two hearts, a stable body temperature of 60 degrees, and not to stun you too much, he's approximately 750 years old. Or at least he was that age when the first of the 43 Doctor Who novels was written. God or Time Lords only know how old he is now. Only slightly less popular than the good Doctor himself are his arch-foes and distressing alien monsters he battles through the pages of these wild books and in phosphor-dot reality on your TV screens. They seem endless in their variety. The Vardens, the Oracle, Fendal, the Virus Swarm of the Purpose, the Master, the Tongue of the Black Scorpion, the Evil Brain of Morbius, the mysterious energy force known as the Mandragora Helix, the Android Clone Crawls, the Zygons, the Cybermen, the Ice Warriors, the Autons, the Spore Beast Call, the Crinoid, and, most deadly and menacing of them all, the Robot Thread of the Daleks. Created by Mad Davros, the great Khaled scientist, the pepper-pot-shaped Daleks made such an impression in England when they were first introduced into the series that they became a cultural artifact almost immediately. Movies have been made about them, toys have been manufactured of Daleks, coloring books, Dalek candles, soaps, slippers, Easter eggs, and even special Dalek fireworks. They rival the Doctor for the attention of a fascinated audience, and they've been brought back again and again during the 14 years the series has perpetuated itself on BBC television. And their shiveringly pleasurable manifestations have not been confined just to England and America. Doctor Who and the Daleks have millions of rabid fans in over 30 countries around the world. Like the three fictional characters every nation knows, Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, and Superman, Doctor Who seems to have a universal appeal. Let me conclude this pan of praise with these thoughts. Hating Star Wars and Star Trek is not a difficult chore for me. 
I recoil from that sophomoric species of creation that excuses its simplistic cliché structure and homage to the transitory, as to Star Wars, as violently as I do from that which sententiously purports to be deep and intellectual when it is, in fact, superficial self-conscious twaddle, as to Star Trek. This is not to say that I am an ivory tower intellect whose double dome can only support Proust and Descartes. When I was a little kid and I was reading everything I could lay my hands on, I read the classics with joy, but enjoyed equally those works I've come to think of as elegant trash. The Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, The Shadow, Doc Savage, Conan, comic books, and Uncle Wiggly. They taught me a great deal of what I know about courage and truth and ethic in the world. To that list I add Doctor Who. His adventures are sunk to the hips and humanism, decency, solid adventure, and simple good reading. They are not classics, make no mistake. They can never touch the illuminative level of Dickens or Mark Twain or Kafka, but they are solid entertainment based on an understanding of good and evil in the world. They say to us, you too can be Doctor Who. You, like the good doctor, can stand up for that which is bright and bold and true. You can shape the world if you only go and try. And they do it in the form of all good literature, the cracking good, well-plotted adventure yarn. They are direct lineal heirs to the adventures of Ryder Haggard and Talbot Mundy, of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, of Mary Shelley and Ray Bradbury. They are worth your time. And if you give yourself up to the Doctor's winsome ways, he will take substance and reality in your imagination. For that reason... For the inestimable goodness and delight in every Doctor Who adventure, for the benefits he proffers, I lend my name and my urging to read and watch him. I don't think you'll do less than thank me for shoving you down with this book in your hands and telling you, here's who. Meet the Doctor. The pleasure is all mine, and all yours, kiddo. Harlan Ellison, Los Angeles.